You are listening to sermon audio from Fort Myers Community Church. For more information about how to get involved in the life of this church family, please visit www.fmcc.life. Welcome! Man, I am so excited for today. I've got a good friend of mine here. His name is Pastor Dave Harvey. I'm going to invite him up. Let's give him a good hand. Over the last few months, we've gotten to spend a lot of time together, which has just been a blessing for me personally. Uh, I just want to thank you for your investment, your time, um, and just your life, the life of ministry that you've led. Uh, Dave is an author, a pastor. Uh, He served at our mother church, Summit Church, for years as an elder, and um, we've known each other for some time now, but we've gotten to spend more time over the last couple of years. So I just want to take a moment to pray over him uh, before he brings the word to us. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful. Lord, for Dave and what you are doing in his heart and in his mind and in his life and in his family. Um, Lord, even through seasons of adversity, um, your gospel has remained um, and you have held him fast. Yes. You have, uh, you have done a huge work, Lord, in his life, in his heart. And right now, Lord, I pray that you would let your spirit just pour out over him. Um, and I pray that, Lord, our ears and our hearts would be... Um, Enlightened, Lord, by your word. We love you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, my friend. Good morning. I was just thrilled when Bill extended the invitation to come this morning because I realized it would be an opportunity to to worship with you, which I was looking forward to, but also an opportunity just to experience and enjoy this church that I have heard so much about over the past few years and to express my gratitude to God for your faithfulness in the gospel and your heart for Jesus, which I very much experienced this morning. So Bill encouraged me to uh, just take a minute or two to share with you a little bit about the, the organization that I'm a part of and that I have the privilege of leave, leading. It's called Great Commission Collective. And Great Commission Collective exists for two reasons, to plant churches and to strengthen leaders. And so on the church planting side, that means that we assess church planters, we, we train them, and we, we fund them. And so right now we've got like 10 guys that are in a church planter training class, and they're planting churches in different parts of the country, California and, and uh, Arizona and, and, and Pennsylvania and Indiana and other places. And, uh, and so we had the privilege of kind of pouring into them and enjoying doing that. And then there's kind of the strengthening side as well. And on the strengthening side, that means that we're training lead pastors, we're providing cohorts, we're doing coaching, we're involved in crisis intervention when elderships are having a challenge or, or when churches are having challenges that they need help with. We're, we're, we're working with pluralities, which is just another way to talk about elders because the quality of the plurality often determines the health of, of the church. And so we, we, we pour into elders as well. And, uh, you know, it's really about being part of a group that doesn't define success simply by starting strong, but by leadership longevity, but by, you know, churches that are resilient. And so I have a privilege of being a part of that. And, you know, we're not a big group. And we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful 
And I'm just so grateful that in this role that I have, it brings me into friendship with, with churches like you. So thanks for receiving me so warmly this morning. And uh, now let's turn our attention to something more important than any network, and that is the Word of God. You can open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. I want to read to you from verse 17 through verse 25 in a message that's entitled, The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. The Audacious Claim of the Gospel. And while you're opening up, let me just set the context a little bit for this section of Scripture. So, so the date is around A.D. 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of, of Ephesus. And from there, Paul calls the Ephesian elders to come to him and to join him because he wants to see them. Actually, there's a couple of different reasons why Paul does this. First, Paul is an intensely relational man. Paul's never simply fulfilling a job description. He's never just punching the clock. His heart has been united to these Ephesian elders through their relationship in the gospel together, and he wants to see his mates. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And you will discover as we read this that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because his heart is fixed upon Jerusalem. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 25. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Let's pray. Lord, we open up your word with a sense of anticipation because it is living and active. 
Lord, that you are here to transform us as we study your word. And we pray that you would, you would open up our hearts, that you would allow your word to penetrate deeply. And you would allow each of us to leave today with something where we feel like we have encountered you from your holy word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I used to find hiking to be an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my children. And such was the case a while back when I took my son, my oldest son, on a hike into the Pennsylvania countryside, which is where we lived at the time in Pennsylvania, on this trail up this five-mile, uh, up to the top of a mountain where there was an outcropping of rocks. And so we were sitting on this outcropping of rocks at the top of this mountain, and while we were there, we met a group of college students who invited us to come with us because they were there to explore a cave that was down over the hill. So we had never met these college students, but that sounded like something interesting to do. And so as life, as life found me that day, I was, I was following behind a group of people I had never met to go to a place I had never been to do something I had never done. And uh, we got to the cave and kind of went into the cave and began to kind of crouch down and go in and go further into the mountain and, and then came into this area where the first thing I saw was this light in the middle of the room and I looked up to the ceiling and there was a hole in the middle of the ceiling and it was like a chamber. And as soon as we got there, one after another, the college students, there were four of them all together, began to climb up the side of the cave wall. So one of them went up and then went through the hole in the roof, and then the second followed, the third followed, and then the fourth. Now, I, I could tell that while that was happening, my son was getting very excited because that's all he needed to see was people climbing up the side of cave walls and going out through the roof because as soon as the fourth one cleared, he immediately turned to me and said, oh, Dad, please, Please let me go up the side of the cave wall. It'd be so cool to go up the side of the cave wall. I want to go up the side of the cave. And I'm trying to explain to him in that moment, son, no, you don't understand your mom. Your mom sent you and I out together. It's going to be very disappointing to her if I come home alone. It's going to be very awkward for dad. Let's just, let's just skip this. But then I realized, oh, we're here to make a memory. And isn't this what it's all about? And so I say, oh, go ahead, son. Go ahead, up the side of the cave wall. So he scampers right up the side of the cave wall and goes out through the roof. Now, I should have anticipated what was going to happen next. I should have predicted it from the outcome or from the, from the beginning because as soon as he did, there were five arms that came down through the hole in the ceiling. And they're doing this. They're saying, come on up. Come on up the side of the cave wall. And I'm looking up at them, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, it's been a long time since I've wanted to go up to the side of the cave wall. Well, it's been years since I've wanted to go up the side of a cave. There's something about having, having your second and your third child and a bad back and a mortgage that makes you not want to go up the side of a cave wall. And so I'm saying, no, I, I don't think I'm going to do that. And, and, and you know, I'm, in that moment, I'm feeling very old. You know, like I just want somebody to wrap me in a blanket and <laughs> feed me prunes or something like that. And so, and so I decline and I'm walking and, and I said, you know, stay there. I'll walk back. I'll crawl out the cave and I'll come back up and get you and we'll walk down. And so I, I pick up my son and we're walking down the trail and, 
and the air is thick with disappointment. And I, and I realized in that moment, oh my, have I blown it. I've made a complete mistake. This was the whole point. And I said to him, I said, son, listen, we're going back. I'm going into the cave and I'm going up the side of the cave wall. And I knew it was the right thing because he said, yes, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. <laughs> so 25 minutes later, I'm back in the cave. I'm looking, and I start climbing up the side of the cave wall. And I, I start, and I get about halfway up, and there's a point where there's one ledge, and you have to push off the one ledge with your hand on the wall, push off, hit the other wall, and then push off with your foot, hit the other ledge with your other foot. And I went to put my other foot on the ledge, and I missed the ledge, and my foot began sliding down the side of the cave wall. And my body just went into a complete locked on. I, you know, I just, I just locked it all down like spread eagle there at the top of the cave right before the hole. And, and your mind does funny things in, in a moment like that because I'm thinking, well, yeah, here I am stuck. This is what I knew was going to happen. I'm, I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward but going forward comes at great risk. I can't give up. I can't say, oh, hang it, I'm just going to fall. <laughs> and I can't, I can't just stay still. Oh, again, though, that, that's a temptation because your mind's doing funny things. You're thinking, hey, I remember reading somewhere that the, the temperature of a cave is the same all year round. Maybe I can just live here. Maybe I can stay here. Maybe I'll have, have my sons go home, get my wife. You know, they can bring groceries. They can decorate me for Christmas. Again, you know, your mind is just doing funny things because I'm in this situation where there's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward. But going forward requires a cost. To go forward, there will be a risk. Do you get the sense that 2022 is ending with that realization? There's no going back. We can't stay where we are. The only place to go is to go forward, but going forward comes at great risk. To go forward, there will be a cost. You see, Paul is in a similar position. Different reasons, similar position. I was confronting risk because I felt like I was missing a moment with my son. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and did not die. <laughs> yes. But, but Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risk because the Spirit of God compelled him. Let me just park in for a moment in verse 22. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me. See, for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was. The only place to go was to go forward, but going forward involved risk. The only certainty in Paul's life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty was that there would be risk, that there would be a cost. And I guess what I want to convey to you this morning is that the gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost on each and every one of us. 
In other words, it makes the same kind of claim upon us today. In fact, the Christian life, this, the Christian life is a kind of mysterious suspense where we are ever constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. That's like the banner over our lives. Going, not knowing. Going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. And the more we understand that, the more we come face to face with an undeniable fact, both for Paul and for us as well, and that is that for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim. Actually, three audacious claims. And let me give you the first one. Here's claim number one. Claim number one is go forth uncertain. Go forth uncertain. Again, verse 22, I read that. It, that forms a great summary of Paul's experience with God. God creates this compulsion. Paul says, constrained by the Spirit. He sets him in motion. I'm going to Jerusalem. But then God withholds from Paul what's going to happen as he steps forward in faith, not knowing what will happen to me. And that wasn't just for Paul. See, that forms a common way that people experience God's direction. It was certainly that way for Paul. It's that way for us as well. And this isn't the only example for Paul. I mean, actually, the thread of, the, of God working in Paul's life in this way, the thread of that begins all the way back at Paul's conversion, all the way back in Acts chapter 8, where God, where God goes after him and he says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. See, this is hard for us. If we're in Paul's position, we're like, no, no, Lord, what am I supposed to do? God says, no, I just, just told you what you're supposed to do. Rise and enter the city. Yeah, but after that, well, no, I'm going to tell you after that. I, what I want to see is I wanna, I'm beginning to reorient you. I'm beginning to reorient you from being God of your own life to serving a Lord and master that's going to direct you by the move of the Spirit. And in order to do that, I'm going to require certain things where I don't color in all of the details, but I put you in motion. And, and that's hard. We say, Lord, you don't understand. I'm, I, I need the whole plan. See, I'm a type A. You don't understand. You, have, you know my Enneagram score, don't you, Lord? You get me, don't you? I'd like to be in control. I need to know. God says, no, I, I think I understand you. I just don't think you understand me. And again, this is Paul's experience. Acts chapter 13, the Spirit of God speaks. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. For what? For the work. What's the work to which I've called them? What's the work? What have you called them to, Lord? We need more information. We need clarity. God says, no, you don't. You need to be constrained by the Spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what's going to happen. Now, here's a question I want to wrestle with. I want us to wrestle with. Why would God do that to Paul? In fact, why does God do this to us? And one of the reasons I want to suggest to you is that because it is because our uncertainty 
serves a vital purpose in God's plan and forms our soul in a way that nothing else can. Because our uncertainty becomes a daily reminder of our dependence upon God. It becomes a daily reminder that he is God and we are not. He is omnipotent, we are not. He is omnipresent, we are not. He is omniscient, we are not. I mean, just think about it. The existence of risk reminds us of how much greater God is than we are because God doesn't take risks, nor is he a risk taker because God is neither going, because he's already there at all times, nor is he ever not knowing because he knows all things. The mere presence of risk within our lives reminds us of our humanity, that we're not divine, that we are limited, that we live each and every day with, with ignorance. We confront risks because we don't know the future. Only God controls all things. We, we don't. I mean, we control very little. Kim and I spent 50, born and raised in the Pennsylvania area. I spent 50 years there before we moved down here to Florida, both in Pittsburgh and in Philadelphia. Here's what I want to say. One snowstorm, one snowstorm, actually even the threat, not, not an actual snowstorm, just the threat, just the forecast of a snowstorm would just send people into a into a crazy mania, send people to the supermarket. I mean, you see just people like, like, like almost walking up and down the aisles just saying, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and, you know, be, because they just feel like there's this certain thing that has to take place. Like for some reason when snow is going to come, I need a sandwich, I need a glass of milk. I, 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 just, I don't understand why, it's just this Pennsylvania thing, milk and bread, milk and bread. And they're given, they're given these updates from the weather at the airport. Nobody lives at the airport, so you wonder, what's going on down there? I don't understand that, but it's all about a forecast because we fear the possibility of this thing that's going to be out of control, this snowstorm that's going to affect our lives because I don't know if this describes you, but I know it describes me. We, we crave this risk-free existence. And yet God kind of crawls into the middle of that and, and reminds us that risk serves a central purpose in our life. Actually, risk reasserts a reality that is first uncovered with the news of the gospel, and that is that we are not omniscient, that we are not independent, that we are not strong. We are weak. We are limited. We are dependent. We need a Savior, not once, but every single day. And that, th that place that your mind is going, you know, the, connect the dots that are being connected for you right now by the Spirit of God, that very place that, where this message is applying to you, that area of risk, that is installed by a loving God in your life because it's creating dependence upon Him. And God, God delights, God knows that, and so He delights putting us in this position of going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, 
because he knows it's going to reshape our soul around trusting him. He knows that it's going to orient us and reorient us to walk by faith and not by sight. So God knows that and he uses it. I mean, just think all the way back in Genesis, God thinks nothing of saying to Abram, um, uh, Abram, can I have your attention, please? Okay, here's the program. Here's what I want you to do. Yes, Lord. Okay, here it is. Leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go. Where? To the land I'll show you. Well, no, where's the land, Lord? No, I'm going to get to, we'll get to that. Right now, I just want you going in motion. I want you responding to my word. I want, no, Lord, you don't understand. This like, this totally wires me out. I don't like the lack of clarity. God says, I get that. I'm going to work in the lack of clarity. You're going to see me in the lack of clarity because the clarity you need is not the game plan. It's me. And so I'm going to reveal myself in that. I get this. You, you know, we sit here and we say, Dave, that, that, that's crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's, it's audacious. That's my point. That's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim. Go forth. Uncertain. Claim number two. Prepare for difficulty. So... Verse 23 adds this additional, this additional twist to the audacious claim. Paul says in verse 22, constrained by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And the verse 23 says, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. See, Paul wasn't completely ignorant he knew this one thing, that, that prison and hardships were facing him. I, I don't know if your, your mind thinks like mine does, but I, you know, I think if I'm Paul, I'm praying to the Lord, Lord, could we do this in one of two ways? Can you, like, tell me nothing, or can you give me the whole picture? But if you're going to let me in on just a couple of different small details, does it really need to be that prison and afflictions await me? Because Paul ends up living with a sense of danger. He knows there's danger. He, he knows there's injury up ahead. He has a sense for the ending. He just doesn't know how the ending is going to happen. It, it's it's kind of like, like one of those Star Trek episodes, you know, where, where, the, where, where you have the, the, the no names. So let's just take Star Trek, regardless of what generation, you know, what, what generation of Star Trek person you might be or whether you ignore Star Trek. But all of them had basically the same theme when it came to transportation. And that is that some of the main characters would go down to the transporter room and they would get on the transporter and then there would always be these one or two people that no one has ever seen, that no one has ever heard of. And so you'd have main crew member, main crew member, main crew member, and then, you know, this... Alien bait is what I think of them because you knew they were going down to the surface and they were never coming back because we didn't know who they were for a reason. They're going to be fed to whatever aliens done. And you're, you're there and you're looking at the TV and you're screaming, don't get on the transport. Don't you see all these other people come back every week? You're not going to come back. Nobody knows who you are because you have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's going to happen. Here's what Paul knew. 
I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen, but I do know one thing. There will be a cost. There will be risks. Let me say it this way. It will be unsafe. Now, this is a delicate place to go in a climate where we are dealing with the fallout of a pandemic. At a time where safety has been elevated to a need that is just below, like, food and shelter. Where the role of parents is being re-engineered from training your children to accept risks to helping your children to avoid risks at all cost. We don't want them to merely be physically safe. We want them to be emotionally safe at all times. And I'm not crusading for making kids emotionally unsafe. I'm just saying some parents work overtime to protect their kids from any failure, from any emotional discomfort. And then they meet a savior, Jesus, who, who crawls right into our safe space each and every week and just disrupts it. You know, he says, hey, hey, Mr. Love of Safety, love your enemies. <laughs> See how safe that feels. Your enemy? Yeah, love them. Forgive one another. How does that feel? Does that make you feel very safe? No, forgive them. Love one another. Because the reality is that if we're going to be in Christian community, we're going to be a community that's sinned against. We're sinners, we're sinned against. And, and there are these unpredictable personalities, and, and it all involves risks to be a real church. And I know you're, sta- you're sitting there, you're thinking, I know exactly who you're talking about because they play that role in my life. And somebody else in this room is thinking about you the same way. Because there's just this fundamental human drive that we have for comfort. You know, to to remain, this desire to remain hassle-free, to kind of rule like God over our life, to eliminate risk, to obliterate cost, and to keep difficulties away. I mean, difficulty and discomfort, they're basically synonymous, aren't they? If it doesn't assault our comfort, it doesn't really register as a a difficulty. And what's the big deal if Paul is saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. I mean, it just doesn't have the same impact on us, does it? Because God requires us to prepare for difficulty. And I know that this, you know, we can get inspired when we, we hear the word of God and we can say, yes, no, I get that. That's who I want to be. I, I'm ready. I want to go without knowing. I want to board a jet and go to Indonesia, not knowing what will happen and die if necessary. And, and yet God typically isn't talking in those kinds of dramatic terms. The question maybe for you this morning is, can you go to children's ministry not knowing what's going to happen? Because each and every week, anytime, anybody that serves in children's ministry never knows what's going to happen. <laughs> can you step out and use your gifts? You know the risk we feel when 
you know, our gifts kind of have cobwebs on them and we feel like we got to kind of step out and use them, but we put ourselves at risk. We expose ourselves a little bit. Can we, can we use our gifts? Can we walk across the street and invite our neighbor to do a Bible study or to share the gospel with them? See, Paul is speaking within his role when he talks about Jerusalem. My question for you this morning is, what is your Jerusalem? What does a spirit-constrained risk look like for you right now? Because if you feel like this, this applies to you, if you can identify at all with this, I want you to hear God's solution. Accept that life is about going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Because nothing attacks the idols of comfort quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And some of you are there right now. You feel compelled to do something by the Spirit of God. You've sought God. You've sought counsel. And now you just got to move forward. You got to take the risk. And now on the other side, there's a whole other group. And, you know, some of us need to be there right now. We're, we're, we're too comfortable. Last time we took a risk, I mean, nobody even knew who Elon Musk was. It, it's been that long. You're under-challenged. You're lethally bored is what you are. Here's God's prescription. Get going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. What is your Jerusalem this morning? What is that risk that God is requiring you to take? Maybe it means reconciling with somebody. You know, you know opening up, exposing yourself and reconciling with someone. Maybe it means planting a church. Maybe it means having a conversation that, that you've been avoiding having. Listen, here's the good news. God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. And so he says, get going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Claim number two, prepare for difficulty which leads to our final claim, value the gospel above all. Value the gospel above all. Paul says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's almost like Paul slaps on an accountant's hat here and he begins to assign value to different things. And honestly, here's where we see, I think, the true audacity of the claim. Because Paul's saying he values the gospel above his life. I do not account my life of any value. I mean, we, we read this and we think, can he really be saying what it appears like he's saying? That fulfilling the call to the gospel is more valuable than even Paul's life? I, I love this because Paul is like the only guy in history with, with what, might, what might become a justifiable exemption from this kind of sacrifice. Because we just need him too much. Because he's the man. I mean, we, we can sacrifice almost any of us except for Paul. But Paul doesn't protect himself because he's too valuable to history. It doesn't feel like his reputation is too important to be sacrificed for the gospel. He values the gospel above his life. 
Paul values the gospel even above his relationships. And that's an interesting to, thing to think about because inherent to Paul's definition of success seem to be tight, connected relationships. I mean, beginning of this chapter that we read, this section we read, Paul sends for the elders in verse 17. Verse 18, he talks about how he lived among them, how he served them with tears. I mean, we didn't read this, but later on around verse 34, they're kneeling together on the beach. They're weeping together because they're going to be separated from one another. In fact, talk about risk. Paul says a little later on in this chapter in verse 29 or 30, he says, hey, by the way, after I leave, um, bad news. Savage wolves are going to come. It's going to be an attack. Actually, men from among you are going to rise up. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. By the way, peace out. I'm heading out. In, in other words, Paul knew that leaving would be hard. Paul knew that the people would be at risk. Yet the gospel was calling him to another place, and he was able to entrust those he loved to other people that God would raise up. He didn't have to be the man in the middle of it all, the woman who was always in control, who always had to be the one called upon. You know, sometimes we think the best way to honor God is to protect people from all risk, protect our money from all risk, to protect, you know, but, but mission go, does not go forward unless we take risks. I, I, I brought this quote from a conference where John Piper once spoke, and John Piper made the following comment. He said, no local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. Think about that. Now, by the way, I've not been asked by the elders to prepare you for some kind of jarring announcement that's about to come about Bill or somebody like that. No, it's nothing, not about that. It's just this idea that for the mission to go forward, congregations have to be willing to make risks and not feel like the most important thing for us to do is to hold on to everything that God has given us. So Paul valued the gospel above his life. Paul valued the gospel above his relationship. And then finally, Paul valued the gospel. And I want you to think about this one, particularly if you're here and you're over 40. Think about this one. Paul valued the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. And I realize this is a strange one because we all long for fruit. We long for fruit in our parenting, in our leadership, in our, in our relationship. But the point that I'm trying to make is that <clears throat> Paul didn't hold God hostage for fruit. In other words, Paul simply sought, to use his words, to be faithful, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That was his definition of success. Not whether life turned out the way he expected, not whether situations that he was sacrificing for bore certain fruit in certain seasons. He just wanted to be faithful to testify to the grace of God. Paul recognized that there are some things that are so worthy that mere obedience is enough. Mere faithfulness is enough. He just wanted to be faithful there. There are some things that are so glorious that it's, it's incredible just to be able to be a part of it and trust God with, with the fruit. Let me give you an example. A few years back, 
A few years back, we had planted a church in a very impoverished area of south of Philadelphia. It's called Chester. And, and the church was planted by this heroic man and his family. And, and, and it was in this, this urban area, very difficult area. And, and a, a, as time passed, as one year went into the next year, into the next year, it became apparent to the lead pastor, to the elders, and also to those of us from the outside that were helping him, that the Lord was not moving the church on, that the Lord was actually drawing the church to a close. And this was really difficult because there was, there was people that had made sacrifices and they'd gone forward with hopes and, and, and dreams about the impact that this church was going to have long into the future upon this community. And on the final Sunday of this local church, Cornerstone Church of Chester, they had a banquet. They had their service and then they had a banquet afterwards. And, and at the banquet, they just began to spend time reviewing and testifying and celebrating God's goodness to them over the few years they had been in existence. And as that banquet drew to a close, and the history of that church came to an end. There was one brother that was sitting off to the side, and he just stood up, and he, he began to sing this song, Haven't You Been Good? Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And as, as his voice echoed off of the banquet wall, there was kind of holy hush that began to settle upon those that were there. And one by one, children in different parts of the room got up and they began to, to dance around. And then the people just began to sing. They began to sing loud. They began to sing earnestly, joining their voices, truly believing the substance of what they were singing, truly believing that even though they had started this church and the church was ending, God had been good. And the, and the lead pastor was sitting there, and he was just observing the whole thing. And in that moment, he re realized that there are some goals that are so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. That the gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, church, we if I can speak that way, because I live in this area as well. We are called to reach this community. You are called to build this church. You are called to risk an invitation to your neighbors. We are called together to approach the next 10 years, not with a demand that everything we do will bear immediate fruit, but with the sense that it's glorious to even make the attempt. I wish I could say to you this morning that the day of risk and cost are over, but to be honest, my sense is that it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what awaits us. Let's pray. And Lord, we, we go remembering that you have gone before us. 
and that you have invited us into this field and that you are going with us and that you've prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in and that your power will give us what we need as we go and that we will want to live for your glory as we take your gospel here and abroad. In Jesus' name we pray.